This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Broden Holland. Broden, together with his extended family, run a 4,000 hectare mixed farming operation called Kari Enterprises between Grenfell and Young. Like many others this season, the price of inputs balanced against our potential yields is driving some clever decision-making on farm. In this episode, Broden talks us through some of the challenges he foresees during the 2022 cropping season and how their own approach to basing paddock decisions on grain protein levels rather than yield mapping has been a real game changer for their business. As Broden explains, the early adoption of precision ag technology has allowed them to increase yields and the uniformity of crops across their farm. You'll also hear Broden discuss their latest advances in weed control as they've been testing out green on green spraying and how their experience so far has shown some exciting opportunities ahead, not only for their own business, but for the cropping industry as a whole. Local Land Services Cropping Officer, Tim Bartimo, caught up with Broden in the machinery shed, in between a couple of loads in the spray rig. Welcome everyone back to the podcast. I'm here with Broden Holland and welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a bit of an effort to get here, but we got here. That's it. You've got to have patience for good things, I reckon. So look forward to this conversation. Can you just tell us a bit about where we are and what you do here? So we're on our family farm here between Young and Grenfell. We're about 5,000 hectares, about nearly 4,000 hectares of crop, 1,000 hectares of pasture with our 4,000 merino ewes, which will cut a few numbers this year probably. So here on the family farm. Yeah, right. So a bit of a mixed farming operation going on. Fairly busy from the looks of things as I pulled in this morning. And can you run us through what it's been like the last few seasons, these wet seasons that we've been having? For us, it's been awesome. We These are the types of years where we really shine when we have the real wet ones, just very well-draining soils. But in the dry ones, we probably suffer a little bit more, but it's been really good for us and got a, a lot of big improvements done and we've pushed forward with a lot of our PA and got everything to where we sort of want to be, but still learning a lot of things and a long way to go. But yeah, we're getting there now. Righto. So you've had some really good runs lately with all the wet that we've been having the last few seasons. What are some of the challenges that you foresee coming this year? Compared to blokes north or west, we're much better off and we've had a really good run and still had the wet harvest and everything, but we've been able to get our crop off when we can. And as an industry, our biggest challenge is just our ports and getting the grain out. We're going to have three years in a row now of 30 million tonnes. It's still all sitting here, so we've got to try and improve our supply chain, get it out to make sure we can maximise our profits when the prices are good because at the moment we've got a low price, but that's just because we can't get it out. So that's probably a big thing. And I mean, just these wetter years put up some more weed challenges, but we're on top of them. And with our camera sprayer, we're going to be able to do some pretty cool things, I think. So a bit of a learning curve, but a bit of a change and a challenge. Yeah, definitely some new learning curves <laughs> involved there. But just before we go into that, in terms of inputs from where where I am, there's yeah, plenty of guys struggling to get things and get them on time. How have you guys gone about that? Have you changed your 
view of inputs, you know, lowered vert or something like that to compensate the lack of availability perhaps. At harvest time last year, we said we were going to cut our vert back, but we ended up actually just going back to where it was just for the fact that the prices are good and we didn't want to sort of skimp out. And who's to say it's going to get cheaper next year? We've gutted a couple of chook sheds, made a vert shed, couldn't store over about 100 tonne of urea before two years ago. Now I can store probably 700 tonne here. That's changed things a lot. Just having that ability to spread when you want, get it here whenever. We've ordered stuff earlier, all our chemical and stuff, probably six months in advance. Our fertilizer, we sort of ordered as soon as we could. Urea, same sort of thing, just as soon as we could get it. Trying not to store it over a six-month period, but trying to have it here as early as we can, yeah. So would you say that your strategy is more about being able to hold as much as you can so that when times get a bit rough, when prices get a bit high, you still got you've bought a bit earlier when it's a bit cheaper and you can exactly. make the most that, of that. That's our aim now. We'll probably try and improve that shed or maybe even build another one that we can store long term fertilizer because in that shed it just comes a bit crusty and makes a bit of a mess when you get to the last few loads. I think long term we need to plan to hold all our fertilizer for next year and just have it here and buy when it's cheap and not buy when it's dear. That's the main aim. And I mean farms now becoming more of the middleman and just hold on to the stuff and it all works out in the same in the end it's more money up front but at the end of the day we've always still got to have it here anyway and in a way it's more convenient but it's just having that extra capital tied up in fertilizer and chemical and stuff on farm is that the main risk that you see in that you've got a heap as you said capital just sitting there not being used that could be used for something else potentially like an opportunity cost perhaps that's exactly right I mean, for us, it's probably some of those things are are money well spent when we're not going to waste them. They don't sort of go off. I mean, we're not going to go and buy 5,000 ton of urea at $1,300, but if it's $600 again, we might do something similar or buy half of that amount and have it here. Who knows? But just having that flexibility and the ability to adapt. If the season cut off and from now and we're left with what we've got, well, we've got a bit of money tied up in a lot of things, but we're going to use it eventually. It's just Further you go west, the risk gets more and more, and that's where it gets trickier. And even our block at Ribbery, like it gets more risky there. So it's just those types of decisions are a bit harder, I suppose. But for us here, it's not too bad. So as much as you can, you're trying to look long term and manage your risk, I guess, depending on how the season's going. Yeah, and we're pretty steady now. What our rotation is, there's nothing that really changes too much. We sort of know what we're doing each year to year. Our yields are going up, which is good. Our inputs are getting greater, which is what you get out, what you put in. So if we're going to grow more, we've got to put more in. So that's the biggest thing, but it's working and it's enjoyable. So let's might as well keep doing it. So what is your rotation? So we're seven years crop, three years pasture, and it's just wheat canola. We're going to chuck a bit of etch in there somewhere and try it. Probably in the future, we'll cut back more on the pasture area and maybe just do things like vetch or something. Just at the moment, we haven't jumped onto it because there's nothing that says, yep, you should be growing this as a pulse crop. Nothing's jumping out. And it's the markets. If there was a stable market for favor beans or chickpeas, we'd go and do it. But it's just so volatile. And as much as we have those big silos to store grain, but it's just not fun storing grain. (laughs) Once you have it for a year, that's wheat's easy, but pulses are a bit trickier. It's almost an art form, I reckon. A bit of dark magic goes on. Yeah. You watch those blokes in Canada skimming their chickpeas to get all the mould off the top. Yeah. Don't really want to do that every year. Not interested. (laughs) Well, how do you go with the disease pressure then, considering that you're every two years going back into canola? Pretty good. We haven't really seen much black leg 
to be honest, at all. We get a little bit of late stuff. At Prasaro strategy now, we just spray sort of at 10% flour, do one rate. That's, we sort of split the application. So do 250 mils at, say, 10% flour, and that sort of gets us that black lead coverage of just before budding or just prior to budding or just after. And then also do another hit if it rains, more for sclero at around that 30 to 50%. So we're doing two hits, but getting a wider coverage for the black leg and sclero. But yeah, don't really see too much black leg yet. But I mean, that's probably a lot to do with the varieties we've got. The varieties are new and good, but they do seem to drop off the perch. But we don't always say that's from black leg, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So far, not too bad. That's pretty good. And I guess you've got crown rot and that sort of thing. It's not, you've got that breaking. Yeah. We've never really seen too much crown rot. We do impact on all our furt. That gets rid of our rhizo and probably a bit of crown rot. To be honest, before 2020, we never put fungicides out on wheat. Like, well, apart from if we saw a bad rust paddock, but never really had that apart from when we had 45. Recently, we have been spraying those and using stuff like Amistar and those little bit later application products, they've give us a big yield bump, but not so much because there's disease there. It's more for other things. It's all been very interesting. I guess those last few seasons have been yeah, a bit tough in that department, like the amount of rust that we saw last year and potentially this year as well. Might be a bit of that going out. Yeah. If it's a wet spring, we'll just spray at flag leaf. And if the season continues, we'll put our Amistar out at head wash and probably do that regardless anyway, because like last year, we tonned the hectare more where we had Amistar at head wash. So it's a no-brainer. Pays for itself very quickly. Yeah, that's solid. Oh, very good. Well, we did talk a bit about inputs already, but when we did our initial discussions was hearing about your precision agriculture and how you've been implementing different technologies to get more uniform and result. Can you just describe about what that involves here? 2016, Dad went to a spa meeting and um, seen protein analyzers on the headers and soil sampling, grid soil sampling at the same thing. And after that day, we dived into both. <laughs> so we bought a protein monitor, put it on the header for the initial idea of blending grain because we always used to blend grain and it was quite challenging without knowing your protein until the truck was delivered. And then also started a couple of blocks of grid mapping to hectare soil sampling for pH and P. So now we've got two headers, two protein machines, been protein mapping since 16 and Every paddock now is 55 Colwell P and we're just going around again now to do up to 6 pH. We're done to 5.5, but going again and retesting some paddocks to get back to 6. So yeah, it's been cost, but I think it's working. And the grid sampling, if I had my time again and had to choose one or the other, I'd probably do the protein mapping first, as long as you didn't have any major issues with pH, which we sort of didn't, but the protein stuff's been there big kick and that's what we see a correlation with yield as well with some maps. So how has using precision agriculture been able to make use of those yield maps? I know a lot of producers would say, oh yeah, I get all these yield maps and I don't really use them that much. But how have you been able to utilize that data? Still don't use the yield maps. <laughs> but um they're a good picture. Now look, this is a real tricky one. A yield map is so many different things, factors that affect the yield. So mice, waterlogging, frost, drought, everything affects yield. And it's really hard to quantifiably look at a yield map and go, that was this, that was that. When you're in the header and you're harvesting through, you see trends, but 
you chuck it out on a yield map and you look at those trends and you go, oh, I don't know about that actually. But sometimes they make it worse where a protein map is just like for us and, and even with some ND, like NDVIs at certain times of the year, protein map is a telltale sign of what that crop had for protein, which is just how much N or nitrogen it was able to take up. So for us, we might get a protein map back. Our deep end might be high still in an area that was low protein. Doesn't always mean, just because the deep end was high, doesn't mean there's too much there. Just means there's some other factor. So we just might put more N on and it can take it out of the ground. Or, But I mean, what we've done is just spread alpha farm since 2017 based off protein for wheat and canola. So the previous year, and we're back to blanket rate now. So this year. So it's 2017. Like if we had three solid years like we've had since we started, I reckon we could do it in two or three years. But yeah, since 17 to now, we've gone from sort of six or seven rates in some paddocks to one or two now of your year. So what benefit do you think that has for you? Well, we can't blend anymore. So 2016, 17, we probably blended maybe five or a thousand ton of grain each of those years. So probably 20, 30 grams worth of grain. 2020, 21, we can't blend anything. Like we couldn't blend a single ton. And I've got a couple of paddocks that I've just did the maps for yesterday and the protein is within 1% from top to bottom of the paddock, which in the past for those same paddocks, you might have 8 to 14%. Well, it's all 12%, which I sort of thought was going to happen, but I probably didn't think it would happen that quickly and easily. And to be honest, I thought it would stay more variable because there'd be other factors that would affect things. But we've I've always said that we'd probably get our nitrogen or our urea right based on our protein, get our proteins even, and then go back and see what's left. It's 5%. It's probably not worth all the mucking around to go and do. And our yields are the same. Like they've just gone from an average yield to now we can grow a seven-ton crop across 300 hectares. We could grow a seven-ton crop before, but it was 20 hectares out of 300. The only places we had on one block we got at Monteagle were the only places that were below sort of six or seven tons was where we didn't put your air on, where we couldn't get because it was wet. So it's working. So just to clarify for those at home, you've essentially gone from a uniform input to initially a variable input. And so you've gone from a variable output to a uniform output so that you haven't got too much discrepancy in your protein percentages. And you've also got pretty uniform levels of yield across the whole paddock. You're not getting like, two-ton spot or you have to be crazy low versus your crazy high you've just got exactly yep and pretty much the only thing that mucked up a couple of paddocks from a hundred percent uniformity last year was a bit of frost in a couple of them so apart from that there's two blocks that didn't get frosted at all well three blocks probably and the yield and protein are well the protein is literally within one percent of itself and the yields within a ton or a ton and a half where usually i remember harvesting at the block that's even now, I remember harvesting in 2017 and you'd have one patch that was doing three ton and another patch that's doing seven and it averaged about three and a half, four, but now it's six, 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 seven, six, six, six. Like it's, yeah, just unreal. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess growing up, you know, a bit further west and a bit further north, part of me is like, oh, well, that's great. Like, that's really awesome. That's a great achievement. But what about me who's kicking dirt out at Narromine or west of gill or something what would you say to them is there potential for something like this i could be totally wrong (laughs) but the reason we jumped into this is how simple it is so all we do is get a protein map convert it to a urea map 
just based on every percent of protein is 30 more kilos urea. So it's pretty simple. And we did it for the simplicity. It took me half an hour last night to make all the maps for all our canola this year because we're spreading tomorrow. So <laughs> I had to do it quickly. Where if you look at NDVIs and yield maps, it just does your head in, takes forever. And me and dad did it and we ended up just not doing it because it was too hard. Too many variables to work out where to put an input, but just the protein makes it so simple. And look, to be honest, I'm going to say this, but I don't know whether it's going to be right. But for the blokes further west or further north, it's the same as what we've had since we started. So we started in 16 doing this. We've got to now and it's even, but realistically, it's only been the last three years we've actually done it. It's, it all depends on the rainfall. So if you have three good years, well, probably two good years, we could do it with our rainfall because the amount of urea we're putting on. So for them, it's probably just four years. If you've got a spread of 5% protein, because you can't do it all in one year, you're going to put nothing on one area and 600 kilos on another area of a paddock. You just can't do that. You've got to make it yield somewhere. So I sort of work on the theory of well, if I spread a map three times, so 30 kilo increments three times, that's 100 kilos, that's a ton. So once I've spread it three times, we're blanket. So if they only get one shot at spreading, they might spread it once in a year, so it might take three years. But if we have a wet year like this year and they spread twice, well, they might do it quicker. From what we're doing and how easy and simple it is and where our yields are now, would say just try it at least. It's kind of the, a bit of low-hanging fruit there, you reckon? Yeah, and as much as low as the high, like we've probably lost just as much yield in the last whatever years from over-fertilizing areas. So getting your 15 16% protein areas, when you overfeed them and you get a wheat head that's got two grains wide and it's all shriveled up and yucky grain, that's lost just as much yield as the area that's got 8% proteins and is yielding less. So we're mining the highs, juicing up the lows and getting to that even band of sort of 12% and we're seeing the yields pick up, which is cool. That's very cool. I um, remember when we were first talking about that, I was like, oh, gee, got to find out more about this. It's one of them things you don't believe it. Do you say even I struggled to believe it until I did it and keep doing it. I'm always skeptical of what we're doing. Look, every year I try and find a reason not to use the protein map to spread. And every year I just use the map. And the years I haven't, I've regretted it. <laughs> like, it just mirrors what we should have done if we didn't spread it. So You seem like once it's been proven to you, you adopt the technology. And we've been talking about a few other technologies that you've been using, one of those being green on green spraying. Can you tell the people at home a bit more about that? Yeah, so... In the past, we've been spot spraying black oats out of wheat with Madovan sort of flag leaf and using the section buttons on the sprayer to do that, which has worked, but just very agricultural. And we've always wanted to do something a lot better. And the bilberry system came up. The fact you can do 25Ks appealed to us, but we wanted to have our own algorithms to do things we want to do. So the grass is in grass and just felt that bilberry were... When we first got into it, we mm, is this going <laughs> to take off? Is it going to be right? Have we zigged when we should have zagged? I hear that sceptic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Come out again. <laughs> and it was a lot of money to get into. But after even just the summer spraying with the green on brown, it hasn't paid for itself, but it's done a good job, especially with Roundup at where it is. And to be honest, we're probably a year or six months at least ahead of where I thought we'd be with the green on green. So I could probably go out there today, literally today, and spray select in canola with the green on green 
but yeah, we'll do a little bit more recording probably before we do it because we're in a bit of a unique situation. We've got, you know, just from dad and all the past workers we've had, we've got really low weed numbers and we're just trying to make sure we get them and this system will be really good, but we want to make sure it's working right before we go doing that because we don't want to end up back to having a lot of problems. So yeah, it's going to be another probably six months before it's kicking off properly. But the fact that we can spray broadleafs out of wheat, we did do that last week. So that's a given. And from what I've seen from the algorithm for green on, so for the grasses in canola, it's going to be the same sort of thing. So probably the last half of our canola spraying, we'll split the atrazine select and do two passes, which will be a bit of a pain. But we wanted to get in there and be part of the trial. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So for those at home who have never heard of the phrase green on green and the significance of that, can you quickly explain what that means? So if we've got a, say, a cereals crop, we can go along with a broadleaf in cereals algorithm. So the cameras go along at 25 k's on the boom. Each camera does a bit over two meters. So as we go along, the computers process the images that are taken. This all happens with the blink of an eye and goes, okay, there's a broadleaf weed in that cereal, spray that area right there, and it just sprays. So at 25 k's, it's processing all that data and getting through. And literally for them to make these algorithms work, they have someone who draws around a weed to make the algorithm pick it up enough until they get enough data to make the algorithm work. So it's a huge thing to undertake, but it's working. They're going ahead with it, Bill Russo. It's good. Yeah, so potentially to kind of summarize that, you've got this spray rig that you can drive in the paddock and it identifies weeds within a crop but only sprays those weeds. Yep, exactly. And ideally, we'd be on meter sections or two nozzles per camera or per section that would spray. Ours is currently on two meters, but just for what we're doing for now, that'll be enough. But on our next machine, we'll go to one meter sections and be more targeted with our approach. But for now, it's working as it is, but that's exactly what it does. It just sprays whatever weed you don't, well, between a grass and a broadleaf, it'll spray one or the other out and leave the other one. So this might be a silly question, but why? Why should I do that? Why should I be interested in this green on green stuff? Asking the same question to myself. For the minute, it's probably a little bit of a niche market. The market potential is huge. But where it is at the minute, it's probably a bit niche. I mean, if you've got high weed pressures, it's not much point. We've got a couple of blocks with real bad ryegrass. You'll never use the cameras in there because they're always on. (laughs) But for us, like where we have low weed numbers, things like select, how much yield is that chemical costing us spraying on canola? Where you double up select, it'll set the canola back a lot. Like flowers will be not bud. and So stuff like that. And also sounding a bit green, but the environment, the less chemical we're putting on, the better, and the cost. We're not putting the chemical out. So until we get a spray with a hot tank and or two tanks, it's going to be a bit clunky. But by the time we get to that point, the algorithms will be where we want them and we'll be able to do this a lot more efficiently. So that's the idea is to get to the point where you could switch between blanket and spot spraying essentially with green and green. The best case scenario is we'll be spraying atrazine and launcher out right now, blanket. And they'll have another line that works on the cameras that'll be spraying the select and verdict spot spraying with the green on green. So that's where by the time we buy our next sprayer, which in a couple of years, we're going to get that on it so we can do that. Because if you're not going to do that, it defeats purpose because 
you just end up doing twice as many passes and it's cost you a lot of money. It's three dollars extra to run a sprayer. So we've got to make sure we're doing it properly. But yeah, it'll get there. Probably one thing that I've heard push back against this idea is what happens when you get canopy closure in your crops. Exactly. What I see is what the camera sees. Totally agree. And we're gonna have that trouble with some of our canola. And I said this to Bilberry when we got it. If you're going to buy this sort of system, you've really got to make sure your timing's bang on and you've got to change the way you think about spraying. We can't go and do what we did before willy-nilly. You've got to make sure you're there on the right days, week. It will be a challenge, but the canopy closure thing, if the canopy's closed, well, sometimes that means you probably shouldn't be spraying there anyway (laughs) because your chemical's not going to get in there. So the other thing is we're on 25-centimeter nozzle spacings. Our coverage is awesome. So we've got three nozzles running at 70 litres. If you've got the coverage and that canopy closed thing, well, yeah, if the canopy closed, maybe we shouldn't be doing it anyway, but it's certainly got to be a bit earlier. Well, I guess it's that old school saying, and I find myself saying this all the time. It's like it's that other tool in the toolbox, isn't it? Exactly. And we went down the path of the harvest, windrow burning and all that sort of stuff, which is, again, another tool in the toolbox. But just for us, it wasn't easy. It became a nightmare at, at sowing time and harvest that slowed us down. This is our other option to that, I suppose. We're attacking it at the start, not the end. And again, because we've got the low weed numbers, we can justify it a lot more to do it. Like last year, we ummed and ahmed numerous times about putting Sakura on because we had no ryegrass in some paddocks. And one paddock, we left it out and now it's got a few ryegrass weeds. And it's like, well, we should have just used it. Where if stuff like that, with camera spraying, like you could go and spray a Matino complete out PSP, that would make it work and be a lot more cost-effective and you still get all your weeds, but you're not spending the huge amount of dollars on the chemical. Yeah, there's definitely a few things that you can add together to get a really good result. Have you looked into mills much with chucking on the back of the header? Haven't really, no. Again, because we've got the lower numbers, which someone will, we argue, maybe we should be doing that for that reason, but just the slowing down at harvest. We're trying to grow less stubble, but we always seem to grow a lot of stubble. <laughs> yeah. And just... Harvest times for harvest, like you can soon lose a lot of money. My challenge with harvesting is it's all well and good to cut a beer can height and get every weed seed or do your residue management at harvest. But one day's lost harvesting from slowing down a little bit can cost you a couple hundred grand if you get one wrong storm, like hail or weather damaged wheat, like we saw last year. <laughs> weather damaged wheat was worth a lot less than good wheat, and it all comes down to harvest timing. If you can rip in and get it off, well, you're better off, I think. Literally, time is money. It's probably one thing in this conversation is the practicality of some of these new technologies. And there's so much potential, as you said, like that green on green spraying has so much in terms of cost savings and things like that. But there's also that underlying, how do we make this work on our place, in our system to achieve the result that we want? Exactly. And with all these things, this is going to sound bad, but we'll get into these technologies knowing the potential is there. But I don't always use them. Just because we've got it doesn't mean I'm going to sit there in the paddock and wait for it to work and load. Like the green on green stuff, if it doesn't work, I flick the blanket switch and we're blanket spraying until it gets good enough. And it is. Like the green on brown stuff is awesome with it. Literally was flicking it on the spot and leaving it on spot spray rather than blanket. And that's the biggest thing with all these things is if you're going to get into them and if you're getting into the technologies early, just go in with the mindset, okay, it's not going to be 100%. It's going to be 70%. There's going to be times you won't use it. But in the long term, like for the green on green stuff, 
we got into it for the long term, like for the next five years, because if we're in it now, we can get an algorithm that we want, which is the black oats in wheat, so the grass is in grass. We get that. We'll probably be doing that this year, where if we waited five years, then got into it, then we've got to wait another couple of years to get that algorithm. We're 10 years down the track, not. Yeah, yeah, because I was just thinking just then, some people would argue, oh, I'll let the early adopters like yourself, they can, you know, run it, knock the kinks out, and I'll just jump on board when they've sorted it. But they've lost that early benefit that you're gaining now. Exactly. And on the flip side to that, though, like for us, the machiners over in WA, they've done this green on green stuff for the past year, and I think they've got it singing in their system. Come over to our place, we're on nine-inch spacings, we get canopy closure a bit earlier, a bit more dense crop population. We're still getting a, a result, but not quite as good. So we've got to do a bit of recording. And with all this, it's all time sensitive. So by the time we do the recording and get it all sorted, we've sort of missed the boat with some of it, which we knew was going to happen. That's why we've jumped into it probably a year or two earlier than we may have should have. But we went into it knowing we would be a test dummy and we'll try some things and for now it works. And if it doesn't, we'll we know it will in a year or so. Very cool. Sounds like a, a lot of interesting and new things going on here. But I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. And it's been a privilege to have a yarn to you and learn about all the cool things that are, are working. Appreciate your time. No, thank you. This episode was produced as part of Central West Local Land Services' ADAPT project through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.